Um, do you want to do our usual, I'll count you down and you can do an intro? Do you have a new intro or is it like the same thing just with the new title? No, I, I wrote a new intro. Cool. You want me to All do right, it? Sure. Uh, uh, no, I'll, 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 I want to hear it live for the first time. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, okay. and, then I can, and then I can riff on it and you know do my comedy magic. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. It's comedy magic. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Um, yeah, you want me to count you down? We're good to go. You can. I think I'm just going to leave all this in there, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to count you down in case you don't want to. Sure, sure. Just, yeah, get me revved up. All right. In three, two, one, Philly cheese. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Franchise This. That's right. <laughs> I'm Phil Wiedenheft, and I'm here with my partner in life and in love, Tom Bond. Yeah, there's a lot of films coming out these days that are part of a series, part of a continuing storyline. They're remakes, they're reboots, they're all that bullshit. They're whatever, they're they're prequels of remakes, they're reimaginings, they're all that stuff. And Tom and I, we are here to be your guides through these series of films and to help you know everything you need to know about them leading up to the new film coming out. We're here to give you that context, here to give you that history, here to give you our views. And, you know, I'm really excited. It's a new show. Tom, I haven't talked to you in four months, at least not in this facility so how have you been where have you been why have you been where what's going on phil i just gotta say uh i've missed i've missed this um i've missed yeah. interacting i'm leaving that in i'm not gonna redo that that's just raw that intro i'm leaving no, it all in there i think it was great yeah we're gonna walk you through your your crimes of grindelwalds your bumblebees your all your franchise and Ooh, continuing series this year. yeah Hey man, Bumblebee got good reviews. I'm still excited to see it. Yeah, but that lie. would mean based on the format of our show, which yeah, I guess I should really explain that we would have to have watched the Transformer movies, not right, 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 right. All right. Um, so the well, the idea, I guess, really quickly before so you dive how into I'm this, doing, yeah, how, how, yeah, how yeah never doing? mind. All right, okay, man, who gives if, a shit? Uh, yeah, we're moving. You on. tell me, you tell me, tell me how you're doing, then I'll explain the show. Later. No, I'm, I'm, I'm doing. It's the same old shit. Who gives a fuck? Let's talk about the format of the pod. Okay, all right. New show, new show. For new listeners, the old show is How's That Day. Tom and I, we would dive into pop culture at large, like music, movies, the news. We would just kind of talk about what was going on that week and dive into it. But I think we decided that we really wanted to commit to the movies. We probably have the most authority talking about movies and probably have the most to say talking about movies. And while we do have a great love for those other things, I think you and I both kind of felt like, our default is movies and we should probably just find something that's a little bit more focused on that. Right. For sure. We, uh, when we were talking, well, we initially had a podcast before how's that day. That was a recap of mad men front to back. We decided to abandon that after almost the full season's worth of episodes we had recorded. Um, not nine of the 13. Yeah. Nine of 13. Uh, I, I still really liked that pod. I, th- I feel like we had a lot of good stuff to say, but for several reasons we abandoned it. Then we came up with how's that day. We had talked um, before we started that podcast about uh, what we wanted to do before we settled on How's That Day, and obviously a movie podcast had been floated back and forth. There's so many movie podcasts, so we were kind of reticent to do that, but ultimately, you know, we're just doing this for fun. This isn't our job or anything. Nobody knows who we are. Nobody listens. (laughs) So we're we're really just doing it for us. Hey, man, we... We have 50 people listening, apparently, I think, yeah, from movie, what I can tell. that's movie, Movies are what we love, though, and that's what we want to talk about. Like you said, that's the thing we have the most authority on being film-obsessed since 
we were, you know, 10 years old, like quite literally obsessed. Phil and I, though we didn't know each other until we both moved to New York when uh, we were 20 or 21 or whatever it was, you know, we had a similar childhood of growing up really obsessed, not just with children's movies and popular movies at the time, but really like going back into the history of film at a very young age and trying to ingest as much as possible into our consciousness. And that's really like, that's, yeah, that's what we love. That's what we do. And it's what we talk about in our daily correspondence anyway. So why not just make that the podcast? Yeah. And I think, uh, well, you and I made the, the core mistake last year of starting a podcast while both of us were simultaneously in varying degrees of making movies. <laughs> and yeah. um, we were, so yeah, we decided to do that like in several, like several weeks or a couple months after we started, you had to leave for a month or so to go make a movie uh, that you had written. So you had to fly off to go do that. So that kind of delayed us for a while. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after you got back, I went into production on a movie that I wrote and directed a full feature film. And that That's really right. kind of just sucked up my life for several months. And it's still like a daily part of my life at this moment, but it's not quite the, uh, the daily grind of production that it was for that period. So I, I'm now rested. I'm feeling much better. I was really tired for a really long time, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, so like I'm I'm excited to get back into it, and I I, I like this format, and I guess now I can explain the format. The idea of the show is that Tom and I are gonna look at a movie that's coming out this year, so some of the major releases that are part of a series, and like the this first one that we're doing, we're doing M Night. I don't even know what the name of this trilogy is. What is this? The uh, the Glass trilogy, the Un- Unbreakable trilogy. Like what what do you call this trilogy? Yeah, I think I default to calling it the Unbreakable trilogy since that was the first one. I mean, I guess it's his his superhero trilogy. Yeah, it's something. But well, yeah. So we're doing that, and the idea is that since Glass is coming out in several weeks, Tom and I are now going to be diving deep into Unbreakable, and then we're next week we're going to do Split, and then we're going to go see Glass and talk about it, and we're going to see how each film has progressed in that series and how they've changed if one's better than the other we're going to rank them at the end we're going to see we're going to talk about m night because i it was crazy rewatching this movie and just like we're really going to be talking about m night at two very different points in his career yeah um like this is the this one's the beginning this is his third film fourth film really his second for all intents and purposes well yeah but for most people it's his second film but it's technically his fourth film i actually had seen wide i think you had too you had seen wide awake hadn't you no i have i still haven't oh yeah that was one that they actually had played for us in grade school uh like in class because it was about it's about a nun it's about a kid like and it's about religion and gods and i went to a catholic school so they had played that in class so i was actually familiar with that movie i didn't obviously before i knew who m night Shyamalan was but that's funny because I also went to a Catholic school and they never played that. Maybe they looked at it and like, fuck this piece of shit. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was just that one teacher had seen it. I don't know. But we, I just remember her. It was one teacher. It wasn't like multiple teachers. So it was just like this one teacher that played it, I think, a couple times during the course of the year when it was like a slow, you know, like the day before Christmas break or whatever. Yeah, or and, she was hungover or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, just one of those. So, yeah, so I knew that. But, yeah, and for all intents and purposes, like you said, Unbreakable is the second M. Night Shyamalan film. And I'm really interested because we're going to be skipping over, like, a huge middle section where so much fucking happened to M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. And then he kind of, like, came back. He was on the he was on the rise, but Split really kind of confirmed his, like, oh, M. Night's back. Yeah, this this trilogy coincides with basically his two peaks, and we're missing the entire downfall and resurrection 
of M Night in between. Yeah, which is which kind is of fascinating. Yeah, it's like that's what I was like. Oh, that's that's fun. I'm really excited to kind of dig into Split. Um, because Split, I had I've only seen the one time. I saw it in theaters the one time, and I haven't seen it since. And I had such a crazy reaction to it as a movie. Um, that yeah. So I was, but Unbreakable is a completely different story. I've seen Unbreakable a hundred times. Well, Unbreakable is funny because even though obviously the the first film in quotes that we're really talking about from him is The Sixth Sense, and even though Unbreakable by and large isn't as beloved as The Sixth Sense, uh, didn't make as much money. I don't think it's as it hasn't stayed in the public consciousness as much as the Sixth Sense has. But when Unbreakable came out, Shyamalan had never been a bigger filmmaker. I mean, this was his follow-up less than a year later, right? I mean, Sixth Sense was yeah. late summer '99. This was also, I think, summer November. Of I had November, November. No, November. Okay, so uh, just barely over a year um, after the Sixth Sense. So this was, I mean. At the time in the fall of 2000, this was basically people thinking like, oh, what's the new Spielbergs or the new Hitchcocks follow up? That's yeah, kind of well, what people were the going new Spielberg thinking. thing. Do you remember that cover? The Time magazine cover? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was for signs, though. That was so that was after Unbreakable. Right. Um, I think he's more of a Hitchcock, which we'll get to with Unbreakable. But Yeah. So I, I actually counterpoint to what you just said. I think I technically disagree with you. I actually would argue that somehow in a weird way unbreakable has lasted longer than the sixth sense has like i know sixth sense is technically on like the afi top 100 or whatever but i don't think a lot of people are still watching that compared to like the number of people that are still watching unbreakable because i think Maybe. Unbreakable, one of one of the things that's fascinating to me about unbreakable is that it's actually one of like our the earliest superhero movies of the modern era and kind of looking at it through the format of like when it came out versus how it looks now when we're at the other end of this like huge superhero boom. Like I, I it was crazy watching it through that prism of like we've seen so many superhero stories now compared to when this was coming out. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess I meant more from a mainstream cultural perspective, not necessarily from like a film, uh, yeah, yeah, film, film club perspective. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, certainly Sixth Sense had the bigger impact, of course. Yeah. And I think it still does. I mean, it's one of those handful of films that still gets name-checked or used as a punchline in jokes. I mean, it has probably one of the five most famous endings of all time in the history of movies, which is pretty amazing. But I, th- I genuinely think it would be up there, like, top yeah, five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I see Dead People is one of the biggest quotes. Yep. You know, um, uh, Lonely Island name-checked it in that song, Jizz in My Pants. So it's... Uh, of course, of course. Yeah. It's got a speaking of uh, Lonely Island, um, we'll talk about the Globes later, but Sandberg hosted and I just want to give him props now because I, I haven't watched the telecast yet, but I finally saw that clip of him making the Black Panther joke and yeah. he he uses it uh, as a means to drag the U.S. government for assassinating and targeting Black Panther members in the 1960s. It's just like an incredibly subversive joke for a major award show. Uh, it really made, I was like oddly proud of him, even though he's older than me and I've never met him. But anyway. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, it was cool. Uh, you want to know who's older than someone else in this movie? Uh, Sam Jackson is older than the woman playing his mother. Which... Yeah, his mother is who you meet at the end of the movie. Like modern day age mother. Is yeah, but she had still to a look... gorgeous yeah. woman. She's still yeah, a it's, gorgeous it's, woman. Uh, Charlene Woodard is her name. Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, I mean, we're already talking about it. Should we just get into the movie? 
Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we were kind of talking about it before you and I uh, started recording. But one of the big things for me, I love that. Just kind of ba- the, our what we're going to be watching this year is kind of determined by the movies that are coming out. You know, so like the right. series that we'll be doing are kind of we are predicated on what's coming out. So we're kind of at the mercy of that. But it was kind of I, I really love that Unbreakables, the first one we're doing in this new series, because. It was kind of just a pleasant surprise, despite, like we said, I've seen this a hundred times, but it not only has, I think, a big connection with today's movies in terms of uh, the superhero aspects of it, and also it's fascinating looking at the the re-rise of M. Night Shyamalan, but also like that personal connection to it. I had kind of really taken for granted, really kind of forgotten. Uh, not It not only reminded me of the formative years of me being, I was 14 when this movie came out. I was in eighth grade or freshman and I was a freshman in high school when this movie came out. And so, and I was already a hardcore obsessed movie nerd. And this movie was so, um, for beyond formative, I want to say like it, it, it signaled to me things that I liked and I was looking at it now and seeing like, Oh, this was probably the first time I was actually seeing, this kind of formal direction and this kind of camera work and this kind of understanding it, like watching the movie. Now you look at all the director's tropes and I think the movie comes off as very like showy. Like if anything, M night Shyamalan is the star of unbreakable, you know, like the direction and the camera work is so like on the nose, but at the same time as a young person watching that, it was like, Oh my God, I understand what he's doing. And, uh, and I got it. And I was just watching it. Like we were talking about the DVD case and uh, like it was, you know, the, one of the first two disc DVDs that I ever had in the slip case. And it's just like great nostalgia porn, I guess, like going, watching this movie again was great. I mean, even the DVD menu, I also watched that two disc DVD, which I've owned for, you know, 17 years now or whatever. Yeah. And has yeah. uh, survived several different cities and traveled across the country with me. Um, even the DVD menu, like the motion menu has images from the screenplay on it, like just plastered throughout, you know, lines of dialogue and pieces of the score. And you really don't see that. I had for, for a second, I, I thought that I had put on the bonus disc at first instead of the feature film because they were showing so much of the script in the uh, motion menu. But no, that's just, that's who M. Night is. You know, he's really, he puts himself at the forefront of his movies. But what you were saying about his direction, it is very showy and deliberate. But I still really, really love his direction in this movie. Because as showy as it is, it's also, it's so slow paced. It's so slow. It's a lot of long shots, (laughs) incredibly slow camera movements. I mean, uh, what you were talking about, I had the exact same experience. I'm a... a year, almost a year older than Phil, so I was going into my sophomore year. November of 2000 would have been the beginning of my sophomore year of high school. And for both of us, 1999 was a really formative year for movies. So many good mainstream American films came out that year. Um, and I know Phil and I have talked in the past, probably on How's That Day before, about how big of a year 99 was oh, yeah. um, for us and like our film culture. Uh, and so by the time 2000 rolled around, yeah, I was a full blown like movie nerd, not really a snob. Cause I still liked every type of movie. Like I still do. Like I said, super excited for Bumblebee, but was incredibly, I had watched the sixth sense many times by the time unbreakable came out. I was super excited. And when I put the DVD on and watched the movie, I had forgotten 
A, how many times I had actually watched this movie, which is a lot. But B, I know this movie frame by frame. Oh, I mean, yeah. I know yeah. I know where the camera's moving like every second in the train sequence in the beginning when you're from the point of view of the little girl or the hospital scene. You know what I had what I truly realized on this viewing, because I don't think I had watched the movie in maybe 10 years. Do you remember? I, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about was do you, I think the last time I we watched, watched it, it was together. with you. Yeah. yeah in yeah. my old apartment in New York. Well, Phil and I used to do a thing called Movie Appreciation Night, where we would, uh, he would bring over some of his DVDs, and I would pull out some of mine, and we would debate over a movie to watch. Uh, I remember the first winner of one of those nights was Mission Impossible 3, and Unbreakable was... I think the Green Mile won the first night. Oh, okay, maybe it was the Green Mile. But like, Mission Impossible uh, 3 was one of them, but yeah, it was always an absurd like popcorn movie that won. Because I hadn't seen it. And then we did Unbreakable and we also did Signs because Signs is a movie that we're not going to talk about really, but one that, you know, a lot of people consider like the trilogy of Shyamalan's peak. And I'm really not that big of a fan of that movie. So I remember we watched that one as well because I was like, yeah, I'll give it a third or fourth chance or whatever it was and still left that viewing being like, nah, not really for me. But anyway, um, you know, what is interesting about this screening. So there are so many scenes that to me personally are iconic because they meant so much to me as a kid and really like formed my taste. But there's a particular sequence early on in the movie where David Dunn survived this train collision where everybody dies on the train except for him. And now he's in a hospital room and he's sitting, the camera's like way in front of him. It's a, it's a wide shot. He's probably 20 feet in the background sitting on the side of a hospital bed while a doctor is explaining what's happened. And in the foreground of the frame, you just see a hospital sheet with a breathing body underneath. And the camera's very slowly pushing towards David Dunn to eventually move into like a medium close-up. And before the camera leaves the the body in the foreground, it starts to bleed. This So this guy in the foreground is the other survivor of the train crash, who's clearly about to die. The doctor even says, like, in a matter of minutes, you're going to be the, the lone survivor yeah. of this train crash. This, this was the teaser trailer. This right, scene. which is kind of a dark thing for a doctor to say. <laughs> it's like you're just, like, guys dying, okay. But, um, so that that shot, I didn't realize that formed the ending of my short film, The Left Hook, which has a shot of the main protagonist on a hospital bed while a guy who isn't a doctor is, like, a, this black market dude is talking to her and trying to calm her down and in the background and then in another shot in the foreground this other guy this guy covered in tattoos is covered in a hospital sheet and the sheet is white and then it begins to turn red because he's bleeding and our main character sees it and starts to freak out and I was always super proud of that sequence and then I watched Unbreakable last night and I realized oh I subconsciously like that shot this whole movie so ingrained in my taste and was so formative for me that I just completely lifted that from this movie. And I did not, I was not consciously aware of that until I rewatched it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Like I was watching it and having that, like I kind of said, I was really into directors and auteurs and I still am obviously, but 
the, you, people have to remember that M. Night was a new voice at this time. The Sixth Sense had really exploded and surprised everyone. So, like, the level of anticipation for this movie was huge. And I was remembering, I was, I was kind of flashing back and going back to when this movie was coming out. And it was interesting watching interviews with M. Night years after. I was watching him at the New York Comic Con panel for the 10th year anniversary. And he said a lot of interesting things that I'm not even 100% sure I agree with him on. But basically, he talked about the origins of the film and how he had gone to the different studios and they had kind of i don't know if you remember this but he also wrote Stuart little and he was kind of a script doctor for a little bit in hollywood and he basically said he was making the rounds as a screenwriter and they had talked to him about some of the major superhero movies like batman superman and also everyone you know remember this is 1999 i think x-men's about to come out and um yeah so the like, first x-men was in 2000 yeah so, so there around still this the summer before this movie came out, I think, right? Yeah, so it's probably around, uh, you know, a year or two after Batman and Robins come out and really kind of destroyed Batman, and they're still trying to, like, figure out what to do with the properties. And I think they had just approached him and been like, hey, do you have, like, a take on these properties? And he said, like, no, not really, but I do really like superhero movies, and I, and I like comic books. And I think the he, I, he said his instinct at the time was he wanted to do something original and not do... Uh, another property that wasn't his. So he just kind of started thinking about his own superheroes and the idea of doing an origin story and that uh, appealed to him. And that's where the movie came from. And I think he was like already, he had already sold this script or something shortly after the sixth sense. I I don't know. It was a crazy deal. He had that this was already kind of yeah, set I, up and ready. To I go. looked it up and what became the, I think the final version of the script was completed in the fall of 99 so oh, a couple yeah, a yeah. couple months after the the theatrical release of the Sixth Sense, he, he I think yeah, he was still right. working on the movie on the script yeah, for he, this. He said that he was typing the script and woke up and read the New York Times like review trashing the Sixth Sense like opening weekend, and he was like, "Oh, I better fucking keep writing," and like and so he just like went back to writing, right. and so he I guess he was already like pretty deep into writing Unbreakable by the time Six Sense is coming out. But it was yeah. a quick turnaround. Obviously, one of the, like that—that's kind of what I want to talk about. Uh, it seems pretty easy to for a quick turnaround because of the way he shot it. At the very least, like I don't think it was probably very hard to edit this movie. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of single takes and scenes. I mean, there are a lot of scenes that are literally just one take or that last for you know a minute and a half or two minutes, and then you know there are other three or four minute scenes that are maybe four camera setups or something like that but it's a style that I really admire and has really like influenced my own taste a lot I've been a just a like a fetishist for long takes in movies and yeah I, yeah. I feel like this and you know early Paul Thomas Anderson like I remember seeing Magnolia in theaters um which maybe doesn't have quite as many long patient takes as some of his other movies but you know between that and Boogie Nights I remember those two and P PTA and M. Night Shyamalan were basically my heroes as a child. And one remained that throughout the past 15 years and the other kind of disappeared and has made a bit of a resurgence recently. But yeah, they, I mean, I don't know how you feel about Unbreakable in regards to like the 21st century average superhero film. But I'm just going to say right now to kind of spoil. I mean, obviously, people know we like it based off how we're talking about it. I still think that it's probably my favorite superhero movie ever made wow yeah 
Well, you haven't seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse yet, so. No, I, I haven't. I loved it. I'm a huge fan of that. Oh, yeah, you did. You did. Never mind. Yeah. Um, the... so into the Spider-Verse, people, got, people should watch that movie. That movie kicks ass. That is a fantastic yeah. film. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, uh, uh, not to, I don't want to get too sidetracked into Spider-Verse, but um, it's, it's such a very... Yeah, you're talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's like tracking shots, but those are like really showy, crazy, moving ones. Yeah, I think they're very different. Very different types of extended like single takes. And I think, like you said, for me as a young film nerd, to watch a film... Because I, I was a comic book reader too. And so I think for me, seeing someone take a comic book this seriously was like you know when you're a fucking emo 14 year old you're like thank god thank yeah. god someone under fucking stands and like i think there was definitely that element to it there was also uh the visualization of that because it's great to look at these long shots and see the way i remember describing it to you though the word that i used was geometrical the film's very geometrical. And the, what I realized he's doing is he's framing every scene to look like a comic book panel. So there's a lot of um, a lot of lines throughout the throughout the images. There's a lot of frames within frames. Like there's a lot of doorway. It seems like that shot you're talking about is Bruce Willis center framed. The doctor's talking to him and they are standing within a doorway that is in the center of a frame, you know. Right. And so there's a lot of that, like frames within frames and single shots and kind of not strange blocking but sometimes blocking that has more to do with the getting that one frame right and just like a quick insert then like that's all they'll get and which is which is you know not only framed to look like a comic panel but also very true to the spirit of a comic book because with a comic you know for a certain scene or a shot or a moment in a comic book you you just have that one still image to look at and your mind kind of kind of fills in the rest of the action and the movement. So when you think of that hospital shot of him sitting on the hospital bed, that literally, that entire scene could just be one still image of a comic book panel, you know? And it really works on that level, too. So not just the framing, but the actual movement of the camera and the longer takes. But the yeah. the, the camera movement's also... It's not just long for the sake of long, you know? I mean, like we said, that it's very different camera movement and its long takes from someone like Paul Thomas Anderson. But I think both of them are equally deliberate in their choices, at least early Shyamalan was. I mean, like the train sequence, for example, before, well, before I get to that, I'm just going to run through the plot very briefly. It's an 18 year old movie, but just in case anyone happens to be listening who doesn't know what Unbreakable is, it's about Bruce Willis plays a guy named David Dunn. He survives this horrible train crash where he's the lone survivor Um, He is kind of in a broken marriage, uh, still lives with his wife, played by Robin Wright, who's really great in the movie, and has this kind of precocious preteen son, maybe like a 10 or 11-year-old kid. Um, And after he survives the train crash, he gets a letter from a guy known as Mr. Glass, this man named Elijah, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who has a condition, a genetic defect that makes him very brimble and his bones break constantly and very easily. And this guy is a comic book collector since he was a little kid, loves the comic book mythology, believes there's some basis in reality in the story of comic books. And when he sees on the news that Bruce Willis, David Dunn, has survived the train crash without a scratch on him, he contacts him and thinks, basically tells him, you know, after a series of meetings, I think you may be a superhero. And... The rest of the movie is basically David Dunn's journey uh, from disbelief, thinking this guy's a crackpot, 
to a series of kind of trials that he goes through himself to come to realize that, yes, he was blessed with this insane amount of strength. He never gets hurt. He's never been sick. He has one weakness that a lot of superheroes have. And um, his son and Mr. Glass Elijah basically pushing him to be the man that he's probably destined to be. So that's what the movie's about. Yeah. Uh, like, so, and what it is, I, M. Night talks about this a lot. And I think what was for you and I pretty like mind blowing at the time of it coming out is basically he took what we wouldn't, I think what, especially now that people know the language, it's probably even more clear from other superhero origin stories. He's basically taking like the first third of a regular superhero movie and making that first third, the entire movie. So like the way a normal one would work out would be that the the hero would realize their powers in the first act or, or, you know, either realize them or get them somehow in the second act, they work them out and they like defeat a series of smaller villains. And then the third act, they defeat the biggest villain and then decide like to embrace their powers. And then, you know, they're off and ready for a sequel. So this one is much more about the end of the movie. He does, you know, he fights a guy in a bedroom, (laughs) you know, like that's the big final battle. It's a very quiet film. It's It's still to this day. I mean, even back then, I think part of what I loved about it is that it was so unlike other superhero films. And now to this day, when you look at all the Marvel and DC comic book movies that have come out, it is still so unique. There's really no other comic book movie like Unbreakable. I mean, it's... Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. What's strange about the movie, and I guess I referenced this when I was talking about M. Night's, how he's talked about the promotion of the movie, is the movie is kind of... I think structured is like David's slow realization. That's the entire movie is David just realizing that he and accepting that he is special. And there's nothing really much more to it than that. It's just him kind of being like, Oh yeah, I do have this ability. Maybe I should do something with it. Yeah. It's it's a prologue basically. Yeah. It's all prologue and it's all built and it's so slow and so kind of meticulous. And it's about slow realizations and like very drawn out looks and quiet emotions. And, uh, I think what's fascinating is how different it is from so much of what M Knight would go on to make. Um, but I also yeah. really think it's interesting in the the structure of the movie because Dunn's realization, the kind of superhero aspect of it. And I don't want to like spoil my pitch too much on Split. But what I love about this movie and Split is that this movie is it starts as like a slow character mystery that by the end you realize oh my god i've been watching a superhero movie this whole time exactly and and split is like oh i'm watching this small little like horror thriller that's by the end suddenly you realize oh my god i've been watching a superhero a super villain movie this whole time and what i think is like strange when i hear from m night is and i also like i had kind of forgotten the opening title card um about the, the the facts about reading comics and shit right I'd kind of forgotten about that. I was like, oh, yeah, this movie kind of announces right away that it's about comics. And I guess it's strange to me because I remember the marketing of the movie being like, because he talked about it in this interview about they were like, well, you know, like superhero movies don't really sell well. So we don't want to tell people it's about superheroes. So we'll just tell them it's a mysterious movie 
from the guy who made the mysterious Sixth Sense, and we'll just like sell it as a creepy thing. And I do remember there were people who were disappointed that it wasn't a horror movie. They because they felt like it had been sold as this thing. But I remember they were just really vague about it. And and the movie I think is about this mystery of him realizing he's a superhero. So I think it's interesting that the movie kind of feels torn almost about like wanting to let you know that it's about superheroes right away, but also being slow to reveal itself as a superhero movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, sorry. I, my computer just kind of popped up, so you can just cut this moment out. Um, I got like a message and I wanted to make sure it was still recording, but I heard everything you said. So cut this and then... No, I'm keeping yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it, it it does feel like two movies, and they seem completely divided between whether or not we're following David Dunn or Elijah, uh, Mr. Glass, because not only does the movie start with that, those opening title cards explaining comic book reader statistics, but the movie actually begins with Mr. Glass. Um, yeah, that great fucking opening scene. Yeah. Like that, that like one shot, which yeah, I think it, also really quickly, I love that that one's handheld and the movie does have extended one takes, but they're all not just like steady single, like, wide shots you know like it does have this like handheld rough feel at times and stuff so Um, yeah great opening scene so yeah and and it starts with uh you know this like really tragic birth scene where um we find out elijah when he was born was born with you know every limb broken in his body um the entire shot excuse me is um framed through a mirror uh which is a piece of glass the next time we see Elijah, he's a young boy and he's afraid to go outside and the camera is framed through the glass of a shut, a turned off television screen. And then the third time we see Mr. Glass when he is finally an adult played by Samuel L. Jackson, we see him through the glass reflection of a framed comic book still. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, choice of direction and framing um, as a way to kind of visually tell the story. We see him age from birth, adolescence, and adulthood all through this, all through these pieces of glass. We never actually put the camera on him first as a person. And the story of Elijah's journey is really figuring out how he fits into the world and how he can be a person. And if he really can only identify as this moniker that these kids would taunt him with, they would call him Mr. Glass when he was a kid because he was so prone to broken bones and spills and hospital visits and everything like that. So I thought it was really cool that M night chose to film it that way. Um, and that's something that early M night, if you rewatch the sixth sense and pay attention to the color palette and certain choices. And if you watch this movie now and pay attention to the way he frames certain shots, also color choices and just, you know, very clever double entendre lines of dialogue. He makes both of these movies, which have really fun, kind of what the fuck endings very enjoyable to rewatch because you can pick up so many details on a rewatch that you're probably not paying attention to the first time around when you're really stuck into the story. Um, but yeah, it's much more this, uh, like stylized comic booky type movie when we're focusing on the Elijah scenes, when it's David Dunn, it really does not feel like a comic movie at all until the final 20 minutes of the film um, when he basically fulfills his destiny as a superhero. Um, but even then that, that to me is played. You were saying people were disappointed that it wasn't a horror movie. That final act is very much a horror movie to me. It's pretty freaky. 
Um, yeah, I was kind of terrifying, actually. Yeah, like I, I kind of want to like make my way, make our way through the movie a little bit, like, and we'll get to this point. But I did kind of laugh actually a little bit when he's like, when he calls him and he's like, "You'll know when you, you'll, you'll find it when you get there," you know. And he goes to the train station to like find somebody who's evil. It kind of made me laugh that he finds like a rapist, a thief, a racist, and like. <laughs> Just like the worst terrible people like are just walking through. It made me think like, man, M. Knight's got a really bad opinion of people. Like if he thinks I mean, he can just not, <laughs> not just the people, he casts himself as a suspected yeah, terrorist. He's a drug, yeah, him, he himself is a drug dealer in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Or a drug dealer, yeah, sorry. Um Yeah. Where 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 do you want to start? You leave I mean, yeah, I mean we you kind of already st- talked about the first scene. Um I I love you know, I love the score. I remember when yes. I first started hearing that score again, I was like, oh my God, that fucking techno score, you know, that like... Yeah, uh, it reminds me of like Adam McGoyan, like like something out of in the Exotica Strip Club or something, That those opening credits, the music over that. It's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, one thing, I like I said, I, I think it'll be really interesting because I've only seen Split once. And I think especially, compare, we're not going to talk about The Visit or anything very much, but I'm very curious about how M night has changed as a director because mm-hmm. I, I, the one of the thing that I'm very curious about, one thing that I want to talk about the towards the end is if this works better as a solo movie than if it does as a series. And cause he, M night talked about this as a trilogy for years. He said like, Oh yeah, I have two other movies planned for that. And I remember like, you know, cause it's only been the last two years that he's really been in making them for, so for like 15 years, I was like, bullshit, M. Night. Like, and I also like felt like I don't want that movie. I don't want a sequel from you because I don't know what that is. And I also... Split snuck up on me. And we'll talk about Split. But I I think tone is my big question going into Glass in the next couple weeks. Is like, what is this movie? Because I don't think it's going to be like Unbreakable. And that's what I think is so interesting. Is Unbreakable so fucking quiet and so fucking dark and moody. And it's not like... Like, I wouldn't say it's a depressing movie, but it's certainly, like, a monotoned movie. You know, it's definitely got its head down in the fucking rain. Yeah, it's a depressing movie. I mean, David Dunn at one point says that he wakes up every morning with just this vague feeling of sadness. And he was so excited when Elijah reached out to him with a note on his car after the train crash, which says, how many days in your life have been sick? And that's kind of what leads... David Dunn down this rabbit hole of figuring out who he really is. And it's because he wants some type of answer that will provide him just like some semblance of happiness or at least some semblance of a purpose in his life. When we meet him, he has interviewed for a job in New York. They live in Philadelphia. Him and his wife don't sleep in the same room anymore. They're clearly about to break up. Um, he's going to basically just leave his family and start off again on his own as a single man. Another thing that I, that I was going to mention before I wrote the, or before I talked about the plot of the movie really quickly, talking about his long takes and the movement with purpose, that opening train sequence, I really love um, when he's looking at that girl sitting in front of him and then the camera cuts and we basically have three or four straight minutes from her perspective, bouncing back and forth between David Dunn and this like, cute uh younger woman who sits down next to him and it's you know sports journalist she likes that espn yeah sports journalist and the camera kind of cuts back and forth not cut sorry it's a continuous take but moves back and forth between this woman and david as they have a conversation but the camera also moves when she you know lifts her arms up to put her luggage in the overhead compartment 
we kind of stay on her midriff because that's where Bruce Willis is looking. And then the camera tilts down to show him slyly take off his wedding ring and put it in his pocket because he clearly is going to flirt with this woman. And it's all motivated from this young girl's eyeline. Like we're seeing what she's watching, but it also really tells us these details that we need to know about this character before we get a chance to even meet his family, you know? And like Shyamalan does it again when Willis leaves the, or when David Dunn leaves the hospital after the train crash and his son is so excited that he's still alive, runs over and hugs him. His wife is there and the camera tilts down as the son grabs both of their hands and puts them together to make them hold hands as they're walking away. And he kind of skips away out of the hospital and the camera lingers on the hands as they separate again and just walk down, no longer holding hands. And it's just those visual cues that really progress the story for that the movie's full of um, that really, I think, allows it to have this very slow pace and this kind of like somber, moody atmosphere throughout because it's not it's not just a, a depressed emo filmmaker. You know, it's really told with a purpose and the his visual storytelling really matches where our main character's head is at through much of the movie. And it's not it's not until the end of the movie when he starts to get, you know, some confidence and kind of realize who he is that some jokes start to happen. It, it gets a little funnier in moments like the workout scene and the camera work actually speeds up at the end. Like it gets more active as David Dunn also gets more active and kind of takes more control and becomes like a more assertive person. So I think it's really brilliant. Like the way M night wrote and directed this movie. I think he did a really fantastic job and it's really not much at all like split, which is good for, for similar reasons, but also for many different reasons. But it does show, you know, a 17-year gap in a career that kind of bombed and he kind of slowly built himself back up, like, from the Drex, you know, and, like, kind of worked his way up to be at this point where we're now at, like, a very anticipated third part of a trilogy. Yeah, it's just, I mean, we'd have to go, like, film by film to kind of get there, but it's fascinating that that same kind of control feels like he was trying to execute it in something like The Happening, but like something in the motherboard was just so fucked up and the wiring that he just like lost control of the tone or something or of the performances. And it just like is laughable. Well, the script is awful. Also garbage. Yeah, I that's mean, true. That, that's a huge part of it. But like even this one, like I was watching this movie and I think there's a lot to the script. I don't know how like thematically heavy the movie is. You know, I don't think it's like a movie with like, like heavy political thematic theme, you know, things on its mind. I don't think it's, I think it's very much a popcorn movie that does have, you know, ideas about comic book superhero movies and two people at the very different ends of each spectrum and like ordinary people, you know, finding out they're special. Like, you know, I, I think there's stuff there. I don't think it's an empty movie. I don't mean it like that as an insult. I just mean like it, fe- I think the style of it gives it so much more weight than maybe the script actually does like it, whereas it looks like the happening you're like oh maybe if this was directed by m night seven years earlier he could have made this work somehow but like i don't know what happened for those few years there he seems to be coming back up though I'm, i mean i'm happy i'm rooting for him um well it's funny too because he came back with a found footage horror movie which is you know a completely yeah. different the completely opposite aesthetic of what he was going for with the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. 
Yeah, I remember that throwing me. I remember seeing that and Split and being like, this feels like the work of like a 24-year-old filmmaker, whereas Unbreakable feels like the work of a 44-year-old filmmaker. You know, like, you know, whatever. I don't know what his actual age was at the time of making those, but like, it feels not. It feels weird to say that he like reverted or lost some skill because like, I think that he, he's working with, especially with The Visit, he was just working within the constraints of that story and kind of like, finding it's like the equivalent of a a big band going and doing like an acoustic tour i think that's what the visit feels like to me um but i i don't know i was watching this movie and it was interesting because it seemed so different from everything m night has ever made but also seemed to like uh have a feel that he seemed to be chasing in those later movies that he couldn't get again either though but i don't know it's it's an interesting movie i love it i really think it com- what it comes down to is your mileage will vary on signs. I know it has a ton of fans, and I I can acknowledge that it's a well-made movie, but I'm just going to speak about The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. I think what really separates those two films, and you said earlier that he kind of made his mark as a script doctor, is really tightening up storytelling. And yeah, the guy wrote Stuart Little. Yeah, what, <laughs> what separates these two movies, though... Um, not just from a lot of the movies that came after in his own filmography, but a lot of movies that were being made in Hollywood, is they are so tight. Like, the scripts are so tightly done. No detail is overlooked. I love that this movie is an hour and 45 minutes long. Yeah, like, from the visual aesthetic to the script itself to every line of dialogue, the placement of the camera for every single frame. I mean, you even see it in very simple shots like... Um, there's a mass, uh, there's a wake for all of the victims of the train crash at a church, right? And the camera then cuts to the outside of the church and the camera is placed in Bruce Willis's car and it's pointed towards the church, looking at David Dunn as he walks back towards his car. That's where he eventually finds Elijah's note. How many days have you been sick in your life? And that's kind of what sets the story off. But even the framing of that, of that shot. It's framed again like a comic book panel with the uh, the framing of the car window kind of boxing him in like a comic book panel would be. He's walking within that frame itself, like a frame within a frame the whole time, back towards the car. And behind it is just the mass of the church. Like, you don't see sky or grass anywhere. It's just this giant building that, you know, signifies this wreckage that he escaped from. It's all of the people who didn't survive that train crash, like stuck back in that huge mass that takes up the entire image that David Dunn is walking away from. You know, it's like all these little choices that really, in the grand scheme of things, a lot of people may not pick up on or ultimately who cares because it's just an aesthetic choice. It doesn't really move the plot forward so much. It's just the guy walking towards his car to eventually receive the note. That's what really moves the plot forward. But it's just an example of all these little touches that he was so on top of his game when he was making these two movies that really separate them and make them true classics, in my opinion. You know, like he just people talk about the the red color palette and the sixth sense as a real clue to tell you about Bruce Willis's character. But you see it in this movie as well. You see purple everywhere in the film when we're watching Elijah when we're watching Mr. Glass. I mean, he wears it, obviously, but even in one of the earlier scenes when he's a kid and his mom convinces him to go out into the playground and get that present, the wrapping, the paper wrapping and the gift that leads to his obsession with comic books is completely done in purple. Or when 
Elijah is going through physical therapy and his wife, you know, through probably some trickeration on his part, becomes his physical therapist. There's an overhead shot and it's a pattern of yellow and green circles and purple squares, which is literally David's color palette, the yellow and green that we see in his work costume and in the T-shirt he's wearing at the train crash. And then obviously the purple of Mr. Glass. It's literally frames like uh, like a comic book cover art or something like that, you know? It's just all these little details that subconsciously or not, or on your fifth rewatch, like what we were doing when you when you really are consciously aware of all these details, but they're in there in every frame. And it's something that very few filmmakers are ever, a, ever able to capture in such detail. And I think when he was at the top of his game, he was really able to do it like few people ever were. And the difference between that and something like Split Now um, or The Visit is I think he really got away from that and started taking bigger and bigger projects that weren't personal to him and that he didn't care about nearly as much. And I feel like he obviously got up in his own head. Um, We saw that with Lady in the Water, where he cast himself as a writer who can save the world. And I think he, yeah, I think he forgot what really got him to this point of being such a beloved filmmaker. And then with The Visit, and especially with with Split, um, I think the constraints of The Visit really helped him like having to work within that box because it brought out his creative side. And then I think with split, he was able to get back into telling a story that he really cares about. And you know, the results are clear. Well, it's like, yeah, like I have in my notes, love how quickly it establishes the relationship between he and Penn. Um, I had typed that in my phone. And and so like you were saying earlier with like the way the kid reacts versus the way she reacts and them losing their hands. And then the very next scene is, her in her bedroom putting clothes away and you see that he's walking upstairs to his bedroom and there you see that oh they're living in separate bedrooms at this point so like literally within they haven't had a single line of dialogue with each other or or by the time they're having their like first conversation you already know five different things about their relationship or how that you know and that that type of thing that type of efficient smart writing mixed with visual storytelling mixed with great like really smart uh, adult mature performances for this material. They're taking it very seriously. And I like that there's like a real weight between them. And I like how seriously it takes their relationship and how much that's a part of the movie. And it, like you said, there's those types of details like that you can enjoy going back and seeing on your fifth rewatch, like you said, with the color palette and everything. And that stuff's great. And also like the, the one note, I, the quote I wrote down is when you're seeing Sam Jackson introduced as an adult for the first time. And he's explaining uh, that the art, the art drawing in his uh, limited edition gallery. And he says, villains heads are uh, disproportionate to the body. And, you know, if you look at Sam Jackson's movie, his hair is fucking crazy. Yeah. And, um, and so if you're looking at just like Sam Jackson in the series, it looks like his head or the shape of his head is this very weird, disproportionate thing in relation to his body. And obviously, you know, the movie, spoiler for anyone who hasn't fucking gotten this far. Um, Sam Jackson is the villain in this movie um, or the super villain in David's life. And that's what the series sets up. Uh, so like just even that, those types of things that night is visually and efficiently as a, as a screenwriter, just doing so much. And I think that is even as much as I, I do kind of like split, I'm, I'm a bit more mixed on it compared to this one, but it seems like you said, like that care to detail is kind of, especially what's lacking in the later films that I'd be interested to see if he can kind of like shift and get back into, if he got more power, more 
money again. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I'm very excited to see how Glass is because it seems like he, um, you know, probably knew while making Glass, like, oh, Split was a big hit. This will probably be a big hit. Like, I'm free to kind of do what I want here. So it'll be interesting to see what he's do- up to. Yeah, I, I have confidence that it'll be good. Uh, I think Split is good ultimately for very different reasons, but... Um, yeah, I, very, I, very I, different reasons, yeah. I imagine Glass will be much more like Split than it is like Unbreakable, but... Agreed. That's okay, and I, I will say, um, after the success of Split, and it was a... <clears throat> excuse me, it was a huge success. I mean, I think the budget for the visit, I think, was around $5 million and it made 60 or 70 domestic. The budget for... Split was maybe fifteen, and I think it crossed one hundred and fifty million in the U.S. So it, they're pretty monster hits by comparison. I think Phil's looking that up right now. Um, but I think what's what gets me excited and what gives me hope is I personally think Split is his best movie since Unbreakable, um, something that he clearly was passionate about telling. And after the success of Split, when Glass became well, was greenlit. What he was posting on social media was basically him at his computer typing away on the script. And I think that's that's Shyamalan in his peak. When he's really excited about writing a story, that's where he's at his best, I think. Maybe his uh, level of visual care, like his obsession with getting all the details right, maybe isn't quite what it once was. Um, because I don't, I don't think I'd be curious like you to rewatch Split. I've still only seen it the one time, but I was a big fan of it. Um, I don't think those visual details are there on the level they are uh, with Unbreakable of the Sixth Sense. I just think he's telling. Maybe he's evolved in a way to try to tell stories in a more modern way. Like I, I don't know, maybe Unbreakable wouldn't be nearly as successful if it was released right now, and was told the same visual way with the same type of pace and atmosphere. Who knows? But he's also, you know, almost 20 years older, so his taste has probably evolved a bit as well. Yeah. But uh, uh, you were talking about the acting, and I did want to highlight. Oh, yeah, for, yeah. I still want to dive into the performances and kind of talk about yeah. each person individually, yeah. So for one thing, I think Bruce Willis gives two of the best performances of, of his entire career through thanks to M. Night with The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. I think he's really fantastic and understated, but I think the best performance in the entire movie is robin wright she's so good in, like she's every movie? so good in this movie yeah but the the one scene in particular that just kills me whenever i watch it is when she knocks on his bedroom door bruce Willis oh, is yeah. reading a newspaper and then it's another cool visual gag to show his son's love for him so he's reading the paper and he's alone in bed and then he puts the paper down you realize his son's been there sleeping on his chest the whole time which is a nice little moment then the there's a knock on the door. It's Robin Wright. It's the middle of the night, um, and she says, you know, I've come to a decision about something, but before I do, I want to ask you, have you been with anyone since we've been having problems? I'm not going to get emotional. It doesn't matter anyway. I just want to know. And she, like, can't stop herself from rattling on more. You can tell she's just super nervous about it and trying to stay composed. And when he finally just quietly says that he hasn't, she just immediately breaks down. And the camera's on her the entire time. It's another one of those long single takes. We we kind of just are over the shoulder of Bruce Willis, maybe slightly profile or whatever. But it's all on her, and it's just a tour de force of acting and line reading work that's so good. The way she breaks down and then is able to compose herself and get back to what she was trying to say about, 
you know, I want to start over. And if you want to take me on, on a date, that'd be okay. And just how vulnerable she makes herself. That scene is just so, so, so good. I love yeah, it so she, much. She's great. I, that scene was interesting because I, I was thinking about how great she was in that moment, but also wondering as uh, just in terms of tone, like you, like you said, you never see Bruce Willis's face at all during any of that. And it's, it makes the film, I think, keep David at such an emotional distance at times. Cause we, we're not really led into, I mean, you are led into David's inner thinking a lot, but I guess, you know, like you said, it's just kind of like a vague emptiness that he's feeling and he doesn't quite know what's wrong. And I mean, I think like we come to find out it's cause he's not fulfilling his destiny or whatever. I think the movie's arguing and that he needs to like be helping people in order to like actually feel that void. And that's not his wife's fault that it's not there, but yeah, but it, that's also a choice that's very deliberate um, because, you know, they eventually go on that date and she flat out says, are you aware that you're keeping me and your son at a at a at an emotional distance? Yeah. And he yeah, says, no, yes, I mean, but he yeah. can't understand why. So even though I agree with you, we at the audience are kind of that whole scene, that powerhouse scene that Robin Wright has. David says one word the entire time. He opens the door and then halfway through says no. And then she leaves and he shuts the door. And before we can really, we get like two or three seconds on his face. Um, but before we can really gauge how he's thinking, it, this it, we cut to the next scene. So we really don't get his reaction to that or how what he's thinking about that. If he's super excited, if he's nervous about it, whatever. We don't really get... Well, he, yeah, he turns around, him. he closes the door and turns to camera. And I actually like remember noting like, wow, he's got like a nothing on his face. Right yeah. Now. He, he's not giving you anything. Exactly. And, yeah, but it's, so, it's, that's all a clear choice. It's not, it's not like he cut too soon and it was a mistake in the editing or anything like it's clearly a deliberate acting choice and a deliberate camera placement and editing choice to really keep us at that remove and really be zero steps ahead of David in this story. You know, yeah, yeah, and, which isn't uh, always the case with a character. A lot of times, you're as the audience, you know, like the Hitchcock line of suspense is like the most suspenseful thing is to put a bomb under the dinner table, but the characters don't know it; only the audience does. Something like that. We're we're never a step ahead of David. We find out everything when he finds out, and never before. Yeah, and Sam's really like kind of like explaining to David slash explaining to the audience, like these are the rules of comic books. And it's, I, like I said, I think it's really fascinating that this movie came out in 2000, well before the kind of boom of comic book films and comic book stories that have taken over the market at this point. So I, now I don't think you would necessarily need to explain it as much, but I think back then people didn't quite understand the lingo or the structure of these stories quite as much. So I like Sam telling him all these stories and explaining it to him. And like David, like I said, this movie's all about a slow realization and um, just the way it's kind of slowly built out, like the workout scene, like he, you see his strength developing or him like, Oh, Hey, yeah, I haven't been, I, I really haven't been sick or, um, and I, well, I do love the scene and then there's scenes like where the, the gun, you know, where you're like, Oh, is he bulletproof? We don't know that, you know? Yeah. And I remember watching that scene in theaters when I was younger and being so on the edge of my seat. Yeah. Yeah. So nervous that entire time. It's yeah. a really great scene. Well, yeah. And then there's the scene, like the scene, no shooting friends, honey. Yeah. For, yeah. Friends don't shoot each other, honey or whatever she says. It's, it's so fucking uncomfortable, but funny. And yeah, yeah I remember 
that that scene and, and you know like you said like this is just about him coming to terms with his small ability it's not about him necessarily like going out and fighting people but like there's the one scene there, there's the one scene where he has the the gut his spidey sense fucking tingles and he knows what gun that guy has in his waistband and so that's enough to convince elijah that oh my god this guy's legit like he uh he's my guy and he's who i'm going after and from there like yeah there's not really any action in this movie but there is like him with his fucking hands walking through the train station and like he has that feeling about M night and he's kind of like what Sam Jackson describes. Have you ever tried to develop this ability? You know, this, uh, uh, this like gut instinct that you have for people and yeah. that leads the, like the, the scenes of him walking around and trying to like find who he's going to like stop or save. Um, that scene you mentioned, sorry to cut you off, but that scene yeah. you mentioned of him, you know, having that spidey sense about a guy carrying a gun in the stadium, so he gets his security buddy to start doing pat downs, and they, him and Elijah, watch the guy uh, step out of line. Which Bruce Willis says, you know, if he's carrying a weapon, he will. He eventually tells Elijah that he thought he was holding specifically a gun with a silver grip or something like that, right? And then Elijah is so convinced and wants to believe so badly that he starts following this guy outside the stadium to the point where he has to go down a bunch of subway steps, which for him, I mean, that's another clue right here that he, but it's also another clue right there that he's some type of superhero or villain because the way Shyamalan shoots the stairs is one of the few examples of using like a really exaggerated camera move. Um, And then he falls down the steps, breaks every bone in his legs, is confined to a wheelchair for the rest of the film after that. But while he's laying upside down, he sees the gun in the guy's holster and he kind of smiles, even though he has just lost the the next year and a half to a crippling injury. But it really endears us to him because he is so on the case for this. He so badly wants to believe, you know, he's like Fox Mulder or something. But when he gets that glimpse of the gun, it's enough. And it makes like that horrible injury. He just that just happened to him worth it in his eyes, you know, and it really Shaman really does a good job of making this guy like a creep, but a sympathetic character up until the final five minutes of the movie when you realize what he's been doing the whole time. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's talk. I guess we'll just talk about Sam Jackson for a second. He's so yeah. good in this movie. So good. So good. And I love all the de- I love his fucking hair. I love the purple. I love his car. I forgot about his padded car. Um, his car is one of the first moments where I thought, how did we not know he was a supervillain right there? Yeah, like it's such an, stuff, a sleek, ostentatious car that no superhero besides Iron Man would drive in, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like the, you're watching the movie, and I love or the Batman, way the movie. I guess. Yeah, the movie like finds a way to balance that tone of like having this like romantic, this marriage crumbling in the middle of it while also having this like crazy padded supercar, you know? Like it has that this crazy kind of back and forth that I think is pretty great, you know? Like it has the scenes of him like having superpowers for lack of a better word, you know, but it still feels very grounded. And yeah, it was, I really fucking loved watching this movie again. I was kind of surprised how much I enjoyed it. Actually. I love this movie so, so much. I also, I really had a revelation while rewatching it this particular time about how much this movie really did mean to me. Uh, when I was in high school, it was kind of, it was one of my favorite movies in the world at the time. Um, and 
yeah, just how much it influenced my own writing, my ideas of what I wanted to do as a filmmaker. I still, I think it holds up like gangbusters and it really actually, excuse me, really inspired me to like get back on that grind. You know, I mean, we, uh, we finished shooting our movie six or seven months ago. We just finished editing it last month and I've been kind of in this mode of like not really knowing what I wanted to focus on next. And I'm not going to say I suddenly do now, but it really just got me excited to like get back in there and work on the writing because it it shows in the movie what a tight script this is and just what a fun story he's telling, you know, to be able to, to work on a superhero story with that much care and focus and just really make a genuinely like capital G great movie off of a story like this, I think it was super fun and inspiring. Uh, it was a really rewarding rewatch. I agree. I actually am in a very similar place right now. Uh, I watched the movie and I did have that same feeling of like, God, I used to, I was so young and so into movies and it kind of reminded me of when I was first seeing all this stuff for the first time. Like, you know, we've talked so much about the, the wide extended takes, you know, and it's, I think people, especially film snobs, I think take this for granted. Like they might look at something like Unbreakable and I think they might see it as like faux art house or something like that. You're like, oh, he's trying to like be super morose and too serious and like what is inherently, you know, pulpy, goofy comic book material and he's taking it so seriously and so arty and that's that's stupid. But I think for me, especially as like a 14-year-old or whatever, when I first saw this, that for me helps understand the language of when I get to something later in life, like a Bella Tar or some filmmaker like that, you know, who's also doing like, I'm just going to stay wide for a whole scenes and just not move the camera and just make you watch this thing and not give you the traditional coverage that a film does. And, you know, I, I think the way this film does it is very appropriate. It's very help it helps within the mood because this movie's all fucking mood like we said there's not a lot of story there's not a lot of plot uh, plot going on here it's not like there's constant twists and turns the movie is, says basically up front that it's going to be about superheroes and there's co- literal comic books throughout and there's a character explaining to the other character throughout you're a superhero and the end of the movie is him just accepting oh maybe he's right and it's all mood and not yeah. maybe he's right he tells his kid you were right yeah 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 there's no doubt anymore yeah and just all the little small realizations like well you know if you're a supervillain, why are you why water and which reminded me i was like oh man what is it with m night and fucking water you know you have the uh you have water in this you have the aliens hate water and signs um lady Lady in in the the water lady in the fucking water uh i was like man this guy then there's last airbender where they're throwing water at each other i was like man this guy really loves his water or hates it. Yeah, really fucking hates water. Just like yeah. it's always the bad guy. You're movie. right though. I think I think this movie is it's a good he's a great early Shyamalan's a gateway filmmaker who's able to marry uh who's able to, you know, have like a a nice marriage between the art house and the mainstream. I think if you really dig Unbreakable, there are art house movies out there for you. If you're someone who's never really dipped your toe in that uh ocean, so to speak. I think there are plenty of movies out there that you could really dig if you like something that is this kind of deliberately paced and atmospheric, for sure. Yeah, and it's an easy, you know, like Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson, like these are all like easy, Bruce Willis, I haven't really enjoyed him in a long time. I don't, what's he been up to lately? Death Wish, 
Act of Violence, uh, First Kill, Once Upon a Time in Venice, uh, Marauders, Precious Cargo, Extraction. Like, what the fuck are these movies that he's been doing? He's Vice. been doing a lot of, like, low-budget low action movies. He was in those red movies. Yeah, in two thousand twelve, in two thousand twelve, he did Looper and Moonrise Kingdom. I think that was probably the last like two really good ones he had. Other than that, man, it's just he is like around two thousand when this is coming out. He's he, he just finished the kid. The kid had just come out, and he the whole nine yards comes out the same year. But other than that, it's the kid, the story of us, the Sixth Sense, Breakfast of Champions, uh, the Siege. Like he's you know, I guess he had the Fifth Element and Armageddon in ninety eight. So he's still he's pretty peak at this point. Yeah, he just had Pulp Fiction in 94. Die Hard with a Vengeance was 95. So, I the mean, Jackal still, is 97, that masterpiece. Yeah, he's still a, a pretty hot property by the time Sixth Sense rolls around. I mean, I'm really hoping that Split or that Glass gives us another great Bruce Willis performance and a great Sam Jackson performance. You know, he's in so many movies, and Sam, just as himself, is naturally very fun, charismatic. But he really had to act his ass off in Unbreakable, and he does a really good job. So I, I have hope that they're gonna they're gonna get back to form a little bit with Glass. Yeah, it's exciting to see them. I, you know, we love Pulp Fiction, we love Die Hard. They were both him and Sam Jackson were in that together. Like they they have a natural rapport on screen together. I like seeing Bruce Willis with Sam Jackson on screen. So I'm really excited for that. And I mean, I we can keep we can work our way through the plot. I mean, there's some other stuff that like. I think really, we're done. I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say there's some other stuff that really stuck out to me. Like we didn't really talk about, um, uh, you know, like the the the, the more of the plot, but you know, like people can go watch the movie and people I think know the, the movie. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in M Night. Just, I'm really interested to watch Split again. I think that's where I really, I, I left this movie feeling very appreciative of it, more so than I think I had before, being like, oh, wow, this was this was a big movie for me, and I, I should give this movie more love than I think I generally do. And yeah, this just, is a precious movie for me. Like, I, I need to recapture some of that. I still love movies very, very much, but I need to capture that true joy where, like, hold, holding the DVD of this when it came out just brought me so much genuine, unfiltered, like innocent joy that I want to recapture a little bit. Yeah. And uh, like you, like, like you, I wrapped a movie last year and I'm also in that place of like, I'm editing. I'm just kind of starting to edit my movie. So I still have a long way to go, but there's this feeling of me that's like, kind of just like, I just really, really want to wrap this movie up really quickly so I can go right again. Like, I'm really just like in the, like, like you said, watching this movie and kind of remembering like how excited stuff like this, how much it used to inspire me. You're like, yeah, like I fucking love movies. Like I fucking love movies. And like, I'm glad we can talk about it. Cause I I really, this was a pleasant surprise in some ways, even though like we knew we enjoyed it, but I think we both were like, oh yeah, this is great. This is really great. And I, I, M night was really, really great there for a hot second. And I, I think he's had, he's been hit and miss ever since mostly miss, but I'm I'm rooting for the guy because uh, when he when he's when he's on man he's fucking on. Yeah, it's it's good to have him back, even if it's in a slightly different form. So, what would you? How would you grade this? How how do you want to grade movies on this pod? I know we're gonna wait until Glass, which will be episode three. So, for people who didn't catch on, obviously we're not gonna do Split right now. It's gonna be one episode at a time. There'll be some franchises later on in the year where we'll kind of couple movies together in one episode. But for now, we're just doing Unbreakable. The next episode will be all about Split. The, the third and final episode of this series will be all about Glass. So we'll save the ranking 
at least between this and Split for now. But how would you rank this movie overall? I, it's my favorite M Night. I think rewatching it this time definitely confirmed that. I've always, I think I've always preferred this over Six Sense. Actually, I do yeah. remember when when you and I watched this together in my apartment, which I believe was two thousand eight, right? Does yeah. that sound right? Um, I do remember us talking about it, and we were both huge fans of Unbreakable pretty much from the beginning. And I almost felt like, in a weird way, we were very. Uh, defensive of Unbreakable. Like, I think we both felt that it didn't get the love that it truly deserved as a genuinely great movie. Um, I remember you, me, and another buddy of ours, Ian, who we've talked about before on the the How's That Day pod, and will eventually be a guest on this one at some point. Um, But I remember at one point at the end of 29 or early 2010, we did our best of the decade list. And I remember for sure Unbreakable was on my list. I feel like it may have been on all three of ours. I'm not positive. I think I don't maybe. Know how much you maybe. I don't remember. I don't remember. I think that might have been a thing where it made your list and maybe he made fun of you and I supported you, even though it wasn't on mine. But I was like, no, that's a good choice. Well, I, I, <laughs> I think knows? I think Ian's a big Unbreakable fan as well. So I, uh, I just wanted to make fun of Ian. Yeah, he sucks. Uh, he was, I'm just going to say he was in the wrong. Well, and, I'm on. I am on Letterboxd and where I. That's my best way of logging movies and keeping track of what I watch. And I li- it's a rating system up to five stars. I gave this flat out five stars, which I've given it every time I've watched it. I think it's a legit masterpiece. It, it's still you have no one complaints. Of my that was that, I guess that was going to be my next question. Was is there anything that didn't work for you this time through? Very minor complaints. My biggest issue, honestly, and this is such a small thing, is I'm very. I hope it's the same as mine. The comic book employee kind of sucks. And oh, I, think he, I think he's like a real stereotype kind of guy. And even like his dialogue just feels like M. Night trying to be hip with what those types of people, how they talk. That scene in general is just kind of weird. Um, I think it kind of stands out, which is basically the scene where uh, Sam Jackson is sulking after he's been injured. He thinks uh, David Dunn isn't going to follow him through on this journey. And he's just pouting like a baby in a wheelchair. And this guy is like, I need to get some chicken in me, you know? Come on, yeah. man. Clothes. Pick something. Oh, I didn't know you were in a wheelchair. It's just, like, really weird. And I, I don't think that scene works. I wish there was another way of... I mean, it ultimately leads to Elijah finding this particular comic book, which helps him explain David's weakness for water, kind of as his kryptonite, which to me is... Kind of, that's another weird thing. Like, shouldn't that be obvious, the idea of a kryptonite or some major weakness a superhero has? Yeah, that Elijah would need to like comb through the annals of comic books to realize that. I I think that scene didn't really need to exist, but I really don't have any any flaws in this movie. What's your big issue? Mine, I I'll kind of agree that that scene's a little silly. Not I, I agree that he's maybe not the you know the best characterization of a comic book store employee, but also like the the way he like hurls his leg and I think the final one where he knocks the comic books is o- over is fine, but the ones before that where he just kind of like turns and like slaps one or two down and the guy's like oh come on man i'm like this is a bit i don't know i don't know about this yeah and it goes on too long it goes on too long but my no my big nitpick is and it's actually been the same nitpick ever since the beginning i have never ever ever thought the film needed the title cards at the end uh the freeze frames when it says like david dunn left and turned elijah yeah. into whatever like i i think you can still do the twist and it works perfectly without those words on the screen like in the freeze frames it's just him leaving the office and him saying oh, the kids david the kids 
they called me Mr. Glass. You know, like, you do that scene. <laughs> I just wanted to do the scene. That's uh, such a great line. It's because of the kids. Uh, yeah, they knew this that, podcast sucked ass. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I remember that. That was weird. That is definitely a technique that's more for you know, based on a true story movies. Yeah. It's such a weird, it seems like it, yeah, it just seems like I wonder if that was a studio note, like, dude, you're ending the movie on a setup and we need some type of closure. Like we need to know what happens right now because we just hit what should be like the huge mid movie turning point, like the midpoint of a film. And you just ended the movie. You need to give the audience something. Otherwise they're going to tear their hair out. And I, I remember, I remember when I first watched the movie, like just being so uh, blown away and sad by the twist because I really did love Elijah and I was rooting for him. Um, But also thinking like, you can't just leave me hanging here. So I feel like at the time I was probably a little bit grateful that I knew what happened. Um, But yeah, it did stick out as a little strange. But again, that's not really a big issue for me. Yeah. What do you think of uh, Spencer Treat Clark? I think he's great. I think he's really strong in the movie. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think he's kind of... He doesn't get as much as, you know, Haley Joel Osment gets, but I think it's another strong child performance. Like, yeah, might, and it's him... and it's an important character, too. You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, it, he has real emotional weight. The gun scene is really dramatic and traumatic. Um, the weightlifting scene is a real nice moment of levity, but also drives the plot forward. I think it's really essential that David has this kid who's really egging him on. Otherwise, who knows how far he would have gone with this uh, thought experiment, you know? Yeah. Um, I think he does a really good job. I think he fits in really well. And it's super impressive that Shyamalan was able to get two genuinely good to great uh, child performances in back-to-back movies. I think the kids, I mean, I know you're not as big on the movie, but I think the kids are pretty great in signs, too. I think he yeah, did no, pretty good. I think he's pretty good for a while there with kids. Um, he get, he gets really good performances when he's working hard on a movie. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are my like major, I guess, I, I don't really, like you said, I don't really have too many complaints. I'll have more complaints, I think, in the next episode about Split. It'll be interesting. I, I don't know about complaints, like I, I, but definitely not a movie I'm as... Uh, personally attached to as this one was so uh, it'll be interesting to compare them and like you said i'm excited to especially because the first time i watched split you know we didn't realize it was unbreakable too yeah it's it's really not even still until the end of the movie yeah it's only like abstractly unbreakable too so like that's yeah it'll be an interesting movie to talk about in the context of other movie series um, because this is a pretty unique trilogy that we're starting. very unique trilogy. Yeah. I mean, this move split is kind of going to work on its own as almost like there were two origin stories and now glass will be a sequel to both of them. Yeah. This is actually the, the first movie in the series, basically. Right. Um, it's funny that we're starting out that way, but that's just how the release schedule works out. Glass comes out in early January and the other movies don't. Um, so let's end our discussion of Unbreakable with this. Um, so just looking at the movie Unbreakable, did you or do you, assuming Split and Glass don't exist, right? We don't know they're happening. Do you think this movie warrants a sequel, needs a sequel? What would your thought have been back then? What do you think right now? See, I actually, it's interesting because this is one of those cases where I know, you know, movies are so often announced as trilogies now, but I feel like this one, I know for a firm, I know for fact 
that I did not want sequels to this. Like, I'm not saying I'm anti-Split. I Split was like a surprise. Like you said, it wasn't. We didn't know it was a sequel, and it was a, that's a and twist still and not that. really a sequel. And still not really a sequel. Blah blah blah. But like, yeah, generally, I was always under the impression that like, no, the reason Unbreakable works as a movie is because it's only the opening act, and because the movie itself is about that realization. And like, it's kind of like, oh, after he becomes the superhero, like that would therefore become such a different movie that it couldn't be like this monotoned thing anymore so it wouldn't be unbreakable so that was kind of always my feeling about it was like well unbreakable is even though it is a superhero origin movie it's not a superhero movie and the so like unbreakable 2 would have to therefore be a superhero movie which is like what i I think glass will be more you know an action movie and that, that always felt like tonally so separate from unbreakable that i didn't understand quite how that would work and i think you know the way he's found a way into it is interesting and certainly not anything i would have previously uh, thought of so i think that's why i'm more intrigued by it but no i think for years i was definitely in the camp of like i don't need an unbreakable sequel and i hope it never gets made like whatever m night has planned but i didn't get my wish and now i am you know relatively interested in where it's heading see i was dying for a sequel to this movie for so long i wanted a sequel so badly um like we were saying in this pod it it is a prologue to a larger story and it totally works on its own. I wouldn't say it needs one. Like, it, it would be dissatisfying because, you know, 17 years passed before we got this quasi-sequel in Split, and the story's going to be continued with Glass. It definitely didn't need one. My love for Unbreakable has been very strong for nearly two decades now. But I was dying to see the continuation of this story. But I agree, it's... I wasn't sure how he could possibly pull it off because the tone would have to just be so different now the story has moved inexorably in a different place. Um, And now that we've had two decades worth of comic book movies left and right, you know, every two months there's a new one that comes out in theaters. Um, At the time when Split came out, I would say when the uh, twist ending happened, which, you know, spoilers for Split, obviously, but we're talking about a movie that is out in, that most people have seen the trailer for now in Glass, if you don't know the ending to split, well, the mere existence of glass is the spoiler so, for split, right? You know, the ending of split obviously is it's this different story. And then at the very end, we see David Dunn watching the news in a diner. Yeah. And it becomes clear that Bruce Willis is playing David Dunn from unbreakable. So these worlds are now connected and he is still doing his superhero thing in some capacity. That's all we know right now before right. glass starts. And at the time, I got super excited because Unbreakable is one of my favorite movies. Seeing him on the screen again and teasing uh, the hope of a future movie got me very pumped. But I also kind of thought like, oh, that's a really clever gimmick. Who knows what's going to come of it, right? But now that, uh, you know, almost two years have passed since Split has come out, I think I watched it January of 17, 2017, right, is when it came out. January 20th, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I the, the more I think about it, I thought it... It's a really clever way to continue this story because I'm sure he probably had the same issues you and I have thinking about how he could just continue it with a, a genuine sequel. Like, how do you continue this story without it being that, a completely different movie? Yeah. Well, it has to be a completely and different movie. And yeah, now the answer was he made a completely different movie. So. Exactly. And he figured out a way to do it. And I think it was yeah. really clever. No matter what happens with Glass, I hope it's good. 
I I don't think it'll be on the level of Unbreakable. I don't think Split's on the level of Unbreakable, even though I very much enjoy it and I'm excited to talk about it. But yeah, I think he did a very a very clever move. Um, and I think waiting this long tempers a lot of expectations. Hopefully it brings a lot of younger people to Unbreakable. I remember I watched Split with a buddy of mine in theaters um, who's a few years younger than us. Uh, I'm 33. I think he's like 28, maybe. And when we saw Split, he had never seen Unbreakable. He knew the story. But when David Dunn shows up in that diner, half the audience gasps and the other half are like, oh, what is Bruce Willis doing in this movie? You know, so I I hope it brings a new generation of people to Unbreakable because it really is fantastic. So I think um, although my teenage self was dying for several years to get Unbreakable until Shyamalan fell off a cliff and I gave up any hopes for it. I'm super excited it's happening now, and I cannot wait. Yeah, that was definitely a big part of it for me was that, like, several years after, you know, by the time he's making Lady in the Water and he's still talking about an Unbreakable sequel, you're like, dude, your last few movies have been really shitty. I'm not sure I trust you to make an Unbreakable sequel anymore. So yeah. that was definitely the my feeling on it for a while was, like, even if I had wanted a sequel, I don't know that I would have trusted M. Night for a while to be the one to deliver it. Um but yeah, he's kind of he's winning me back. I regardless, I'll always root for him night because I, you know I watch interviews with him, and he seems like a nice guy. Seems like a really smart, like seems to care about his movies and seems, uh, really, you know, just down to earth and kind of you know nice about it. Except you know, which is interesting because, have you read? I'm mean, this is talking about a different portion of his career, but have you read like the man who heard voices? The no, I the know about on? it, and I know you read it. I have not. Oh yeah, I read it, man. And he he goes through some crazy stuff in there. Like basically he got really obsessed with Michael Jordan and Bob Dylan and would constantly compare himself to the two and uh would talk about reinvention being so important when in terms of Bob Dylan and like striving for greatness and with Michael J- Jordan and like aspiring to be like no, like I want to be the Jordan of filmmakers. And I think like he got too obsessed with that for a little while compared to just making the movies. Yeah, he got his biggest flaw, as far as I think any of us know, is that his ego grew way too big. And, you know, he seems to have come down from that. I think he's acknowledged his flaws in the past as a filmmaker, you know, from his work. And I think he's come out of it. And it's awesome. You know, if that's your biggest problem as a filmmaker, I agree. I'm totally going to root for you. He's. It's not like he's a pedophile who just won Best Film at the Golden Globes, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and I, I also have always wondered just because like I'm looking at the box office for his movies and I, I bet it's kind of hard for him sometimes because I look at, you know, the production budget of the happening is 48 million and worldwide it grosses 163, which is obviously a dip. The last airbender costs 150, but worldwide grosses 320 and after earth costs 130 worldwide grosses 245. And, you know, the visit costs five and grosses 98 split costs nine and grosses 278. So even his big movies, none of them are like John Carter level flops, you know, like they all kind of like doubled their budgets. They all kind of broke. Well, even not exactly least. because those big budget movies, you kind of have to double their. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know budget. that there's, there's I mean, spl- a movie like splitting After the cost Earth. And- well, not only are they splitting the cost, but a movie like After Earth, the marketing on that is an insane amount of money compared to something like The Visit. 
Well, yeah, I guess I'm saying, like, I know that he's definitely been taken down a peg, but even during those middle years, it's not like he was making... He, he wasn't losing hundreds of millions of dollars for the studio. No, but and I, that's why, I mean, he had a dip, but he never was out on the outs in Hollywood. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah, he but, continued to work. It was more just the people's perception of his work that really bombed. Yeah, which is why he goes from a Will Smith $150... $150 million movie to the visit, which is a $5 million Blumhouse production, you know? So it's, it's really interesting the way, like even the perception of his career really influenced him. But, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I think we're wrapping up unbreakable now and let's, let's dive into, you know, 10 years later and see where M night's at. Hell yeah. Uh, well, Seven, 17, years. 17, 17 years later. Yeah. I was going to say, Jesus, more than 17. Yeah. Um, all right. Any, you want to talk about the globes a little bit? No, fuck it. Okay, so you haven't even watched them, have you? No, but I know everything that happened. Um, we can talk about it for a minute. I'm super happy that the Americans won in its final season. I think that's awesome. Um, I mean, but didn't the, it get canceled like a year ago? Or not canceled, but like I was confused. I'm always confused about the the times that things are eligible. No, for. It, it finished in April of 2018. Yeah, and then you have like Maisel's winning for like its second season, which just aired a month ago. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the. I know the Emmys. Um, they qualify up until like June of that year. So like anything bef- after June of 2018 isn't, doesn't qualify for a September 2018 Emmy, or maybe it's April of 2018. I don't know. I don't know what the calendar is for the Globes. Who cares? I mean, the Globes are, it's 90 foreign journalists. That's it. It has no bearing on what Academy members think. It's really not, other than the idea that like there's a handful of movies that get uh petitioned and like studios really fight for for awards love there's really no correlation between the globes and anything else that happens during award season so i just i look at it more as like a real a real goofball award show um and in that case it looks like it delivered because bohemian rhapsody won best drama which is so hilarious it's so funny to me let's not also it was just like i was watching the show and it was just a bad night man like i was just watching it and like winter after not not everyone but i was watching it and i two things i want to say i was not upset by the winners because uh i think they're bad movies i actually haven't seen them um but i just having seen many movies from last year am pretty firm in my belief that they these are not the best and i also uh, like, cause the other one was green book winning for best drama and not only just winning for best drama, but also winning best screenplay, which excuse I me, the, uh, green book one for best comedy, best comedy. I'm sorry. And, yeah. <laughs> but let, let me reiterate Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody won, won for, for best, best drama. drama. Yeah, yeah, you're yes. right. You're right. Sorry. Let we, us never forget that. Which is crazy because like at the very least Bohemian Rhapsody, you think they would file under musical, you know, but like, yeah, and, it's and, totally anyway, absurd. It's crazy anyway. But I think what made me mad this week is because I, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't I have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody because, like you said, I do not want to give Brian Singer my money. I like fuck Brian Singer, like fuck that the fuck the DGA and the union contracts that still allow for him to get credit and get paid for that movie. I just think it's trash, and and I can't stand that I still occasionally see articles that have him attached to like the Red Sonia movie and some other big budget things. I'm like, how can you? like do pills and walk off your movie and fuck kids and still be getting hired in this day and age. Like that's when I get mad and just, I'm like, you know, like n- nothing's changing right now. And things are, but sometimes I feel like, man, how come some people are 
like not in trouble. And I mean, I think it'll come it, like it's, I think as this Bohemian Rhapsody gets more popular, if anything, it's putting more of a spotlight on Brian Singer. And I think at that point, it's only a matter of time until it all kind of crumbles around him. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't present at the Globes, right? He wasn't there. No. And he was not mentioned by the, after winning after the best actor won and immediately it won best drama afterwards. They didn't mention him a single time. Yeah. So for people who don't know, um, he directed Bohemian eventually walked off the set and was fired and they brought in a workman, uh, some, okay. So someone finished directing the movie, but Per their, their union rules, I think he directed enough of it to still have sole credit. Yeah, because another another weird DGA, which is the Directors Guild, another rule they have is that they don't credit multiple people unless you're like a prescribed team beforehand. So multiple people cannot get credit. That's why originally for a long time with the Coen brothers, Joel Cohn was the sole credited director and Ethan Cohn was the sole credited producer between them, even though, you know, they, they've always worked as a team. It wasn't until recently, a few years ago that they decided to submit as a team, uh, going forward and have been, uh, receiving co-credit for both, which is what, you know, everyone who works with them says they've always been doing, but yeah, it's a really weird thing. I, I saw Bohemian in theaters in my defense, and this is genuinely true. I'm not doing any revisionist history. I genuinely did not know Brian Singer directed that movie until I saw his name pop up in the credits. Yeah, they haven't, they theater. haven't advertised it. They've avoid yeah, talking about it. They've been keeping it very hidden. Um, cause otherwise they would totally use his name if he didn't have any controversy because he's a very successful director. He did a bunch of the X-Men movies that made a ton of money. That's a big draw. Um, so I didn't know, I will say about Bohemian, I think it's a genuinely pretty bad movie, but I also had a really fun time watching it. Like, I just think it's very entertaining. Rami Malek's very good. The music scenes are very fun. I'm a huge, huge Queen fan. Um, I remember, I think you gave me a hard time because I listed them and like we, one night we were hanging out, we did like, what's your top 10 favorite bands? And I had Queen in there. And I, think I, don't I, know got, that I, I don't think I would make fun of you for that. I don't may, like, maybe it was our Dick Friendy, and I don't know. Yeah. But so, one one of those New Yorker elitists made fun of me for having Queen <laughs> in my top ten. Yeah, and I mean the end of the movie is almost the unedited, complete Live Aid concert recreated. So it's a it's a blast to watch. Um, I actually wrote a big thing about kind of the disconnect between um, general film critics and the audiences because I think Bohemians a very big example of kind of really highlighting what exactly is a critic's job because people love this movie. Audiences love Bohemian Rhapsody. It made a ton of money. It has huge audience scores. A lot of, you know, kind of on and off movie fans that I'm friends with or that I've spoken to, people not like us, people who go to the theaters 10 or 15 times a year, really love this movie. So, but it was trashed by critics. But it also just won Best Drama at the Golden Globes. So there's this weird disconnect, and I think that movie's a really interesting example of that between um, what a critic is writing about and should they kind of tailor their reviews for the general audience's expectations or not. I mean, if... No. I agree, but a critic's job is, isn't it generally to tell an audience member what they should go see, like what they think they're going to No, enjoy. I think it's their job to tell the audience members what they thought of the movie. And okay. like, and then for the reader to look at that and be like, Oh, well based on their opinion, like for me, I'm like looking at a critic 
And, you know, if I know their opinion on multiple movies, it's like, oh, this person, you know, it's like knowing your friend. You're like, oh, Bob from The Office told me to go see it. But Bob also liked that other movie that I fucking hated. So I'm not going to really listen to him. Like, but how, you know, many, like, how many f- normal people read a critic's review and say like, oh, well, based on their previous history of what they like and don't like, you know? I mean, I mean, I, if, if, every, re- if almost if every critic reviews, is, you know. if almost every critic's writing about Bohemian Rhapsody and saying that it's not fun and it's poorly made and almost every audience member is leaving that movie saying it was super fun. I mean, that's a weird disconnect, right? I, I don't know. The, I don't uh, have an answer for it, by the way. I just thought it was an interesting um, I think the answer is relatively easy. I, I feel like I understand the disconnect pretty. I, I think it's pretty obvious to like see what is happening for uh, for people like you and me and critics watching the movie versus regular audience members. And I, I think for us, it's simply a matter of for a movie critic as someone who watches hundreds of movies or for you and me who has spent our entire lives trying to consume like all cinema and not just like watch it, but to understand it and break it down. I think when we see something like, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, we can see the moves more so we're, or we're looking at the moves that they're making. We're like, Oh, well this isn't real. This is just doing the most basics one-on-one. We all saw walk hard. We all have that in the back of our head of like this deconstruction of biopics and like, since like in the post uh, uh, walk the line era, you can talk about, you know, biopics and how they're structured and how this one doesn't do anything new and how it kind of glosses over some things. And you can make like quick references to, like you said, like it's just doing like the most pleasurable, like it's only doing the things that the audience is here for. It's like people came to see like Bohemian Rhapsody performed in a studio and then see a live performance of we are the champions. Like that's what people came to see. And that's what the movie gives them. And I think it's easy to see how like people who are just going to the movies who want a very simple, they're like, they love queen and they got, they went to the movies and they got the queen songs that they loved. And the movie didn't like challenge them or like, it wasn't like a weird art house version of that story where it's like, we're actually only going to never play a full queen song, you know, or something weird like that, um, that like puts people at a distance. So I think it's, it's a movie made for audiences. And I, I think if you're a critic, like you might be, you might acknowledge like, yes, this is a, I can imagine that many general audience members would enjoy it, but it's not for me. I don't think, I think that's fine to put in a review, but I don't think it's up to the critic to be like, well, I think audiences will like that. So maybe I'll like make that more of the point of the review than me not liking it. Right. No, I I get that totally. Uh, Like I said, I don't really know totally what I think. I just, that movie in particular really stood out as a striking example of what I think is kind of a major disconnect between film critics at large and the general public. But yeah, I think we get excited when movies do something different than the normal thing. And we're bored when movies are just like playing, you know, by the rules and doing things we've seen before. And so like, we'll see an art house version of something or a horror movie that like that does something, you know, like the witch and the way it's not like your standard studio movie that like, or it follows or whatever, you know, those movies come out. We're like, Oh, this is great. It's really doing something different and unique. And general audiences see that they're like, this is fucking weird. You know, like I just wanted, you know, like, and I think that's really what happens is like we as consumers of this thing are constantly looking for like a new kind of angle on it since we're always consuming it. Whereas other people who don't consume it as much kind of just want the basics. Yeah, I think for in terms of the last year for 2018, I think First Man is kind of the perfect inverse of Bohemian where it was pretty beloved by critics, but really didn't do well, kind of bombed. 
Um, but it's was another. A, was that a release date thing? That was October. I wonder why that didn't connect. Yeah, I mean, I, it had all the tools. You know, it was the guy who just made a huge smash hit with La La Land that got awards love and uh, audience love generally. Um, it's another biopic about a very famous person in the 20th century, um, but it does a lot of things differently than your average biopic. You know, it kind of breaks the formula in a lot of ways. And I really enjoyed that movie. Um, genuinely as a film beyond just like the pure enjoyment of watching Queen perform Live Aid. I thought it was a very good movie that kind of came and went and was forgotten. And I was very surprised by that because it seemed to have all the tools of your kind of Oscar bait movie um, that would connect with people. I mean, it's a movie about a genuine American hero while, um, and it was also genuinely surprising as a, a, a really good film in its own right. Um, that was told in a unique way with like a true auteur's perspective. And yeah. for whatever reason, it just didn't do well. Um, it's interesting. I but, think that one will find people over. I think that'll be, I on hope TN- so. Yeah. The, people's grandpas will be watching that on TNT years from now. And we'll I see. Mean, I think it'll stick around. We're a couple weeks away from the Oscar nomination. So maybe it'll get some love, but what, what you also just said about the witch, man, I, we got to find a horror franchise this year to do. I, I'm going to get burnt out if we're just talking about, these big budget movies. Maybe, well, then, um, well, that's why I like I, I not to get. Well, you know, we can talk about this later, but um, that's why I tried to put like Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you in there because I thought that would be a fun little I can't like. Can't wait for that. I knew. Yeah, I wanted to do that because I was like, oh, you know, like those don't excite me as much, but they'll excite you more, and they're like, I think, real representative of like Blumhouse and a very like niche kind of smaller scale. But, you know, horror movie that comes out every year. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of frame those movies because, you know, like Blumhouse releases those, The Nun or The Slender Man, those like $5 million budget movies. They didn't do Slender Man. Or, or yeah, yeah, but, you know, I guess I mean like that certain budget level of like, oh, we've got a hook and we're going to give like no money to you, but you can go do your thing for one to $5 million and, you know, we'll sell it on the hook and we'll make 30 to 70, you know, on it, you know, no problem. You know, like, I, there's well, definitely... I think, I mean, I, I think you have the, the titles wrong, though, because what two examples you just made were like big studio tentpole projects as I'm... opposed to st- something like the. Visit well, I, or... I, maybe I'm using the wrong examples, but I guess I mean, like, I'm trying to think of another one like Happy Death Day. But there's like, I guess. Truth the, or the, Dare. Yeah. Truth or Dare. That's another good one. Like those smaller Blumhouse movies that seem like when we go to see. Happy Death Day, the previews for those fucking movies that I'm going to have to endure before that movie. Yeah. You know, well, whenever, when, whenever there's a next Purge movie, you know I'm making us watch them all. I have not seen any of the... No, I saw the first one, uh, but that's it. I have not seen any of the other movies. First one, in my opinion, is the worst one, so maybe it'll be an enjoyable experience for you. Yeah, and I mean, like, and that's the other thing. Like, you know, I guess we can talk more broadly about the series as a whole throughout the year. Like, I, I wanted to be able to talk about Us and Get Out and Keanu and, like... Pet Cemetery, and you know, like we're not just—I mean, like we don't have to do the Avengers. I just felt like Avengers was such a big one that it's we should. To no, we should definitely do the Avengers. I mean, Even the though, last Avengers I thought was great, yeah. but we're obviously going to be loose with the with the word franchise and exactly what that means. Well, yeah, and like you know, like I have several weeks of Godzilla's mapped out for us because I thought it'd be interesting to see all the different ways yeah. that Godzilla's been rebooted over the Hell years. Yeah. Like, and I think it'll be hilarious to go watch the '98 one again. Oh, and, I can't wait to watch that again. You know, yeah, and we've got Toy Story on here. We've got like Quentin Tarantino has a movie coming out later this year. Like, I think, and there's a little gap in the summer where I thought we could kind of fill that in. There's not really, 
you know, we can shuffle some of these release dates around. I'm sure something will happen in our lives where we'll get thrown off. But I think we're, I don't think we're just doing like, you know, action, you know, Marvel and Star Wars movies or anything. No, of All course. The, I mean, we're yeah. starting off with M. Night. You know, it's great. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, I, you know, we'll do some horror movies. We'll do some smaller ones. I, we got Happy Death Day. Next up on the dock is the Lego movie after this. Yeah, so are we going to post? I mean, we should probably tell people in advance. I guess people know the next three, what the next three episodes are. Yeah, the are. next episode is split, and then we're going to do, and then Glass, when that comes out on the 20th, it comes out several days. We'll see it the weekend it comes out and record the next week, or the week it comes out. and Then that episode, and then we'll start the new series and get ready for the Lego Movie 2 coming out, I believe. Right, okay. So I, I guess at the end of each franchise uh, wrap-up, We'll kind of explain the upcoming schedule, what movies we're going to watch for the upcoming episodes leading to the new release. So if people are curious and want to follow along, they are they are encouraged to do so. That would be a lot of fun. Okay, yeah. I mean, I right now, I feel pretty comfortable that we're going to talk about Splitting Glass, and we're going to talk about the Lego Movie series up until Lego Movie 2 comes out. And then we'll do Happy Death Day 1 and 2, because that's a nice little quick wrap-up. And then, you know, Us is coming out at the end of March, the day or towards the end of March, the day after my birthday. That'll be a nice little birthday present for me. Um, and that's not really a series. That's kind of our first... We're going to just talk about Jordan Peele as a filmmaker. Uh, Keanu, Keanu Moore is him as a comedian, writer, and performer with Keanu Peele, and the way that led to Get Out, and the way Get Out's bringing us to Us. So I think that'll be an interesting, like, not technically a series, but is about a line of films leading into this particular one that we're coming out with. Yeah. And I don't think it will be out by then, but if we get lucky and the new twilight zone reboot is out at that point, we can always uh, talk about a couple of those episodes as well because Keanu, he did not direct. No. Yeah. And that's why I said, yeah, that's why it's a loose filmography, but he wrote it and starred in it. I think it's an important part of him as like a a particular, a very important step in him as like a a voice as a filmmaker. And I, I have heard him say, uh, this isn't a spoiler because I know nothing about us other than the trailer, but he did mention that um, he believes that they are kind of in the same universe the way Edgar Wright had Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End kind of tangentially linked by the Cornetto trilogy, but that these movies kind of, us particularly in Get Out, I mean, take place in the same general universe. So there is kind of a, a loose thread there beyond it being yeah. a... A working genius. Yeah, and after that, uh, yeah, after that in April we have Pet Cemetery coming out. So I thought maybe we could talk oh, about some so Stephen we, King. We do movies. have some horror movies. What am I talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, we, that's all leading up into like Avengers at the end of April. So like you know we we got a good, and then there would be a big Godzilla series after that throughout the summer. Oh, it's like, gonna be so fun. Yeah, like we're. I think there's a good mix. If anything, I probably catered to you too much. I need to take away some of these movies you'll enjoy fuck probably. that fuck that what would you want to take away from that uh none i i, I set up the list uh, i mean like there's a couple that i think we can debate like there's pet cemetery there's the original pet cemetery and then there's pet cemetery 2 and i didn't we know if you absolutely watching both of those okay well as i was gonna say i didn't know if you wanted to like mix it up and do like a different king adaptation or something else like talk you talk more broadly about king adaptations well i don't Can't, know because we, we have we, we cannot it do it part up. one because it yeah. part one will do later in the year i've already reserved that for later in the year along with the miniseries i assume the it miniseries there's an it oh the oh the tv oh yeah, yeah i hadn't thought about that yeah, actually, that's Tim weird. Curry, yeah. I I only thought of it part one. That's yeah, we should definitely do. I can't believe I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And yeah, um, okay. But Exciting we can also stuff. Do, I mean, like, yeah. 
we can also do like we were doing with Happy Death Day, even if it's just like a two-part series. That's fine too. And I do think for some, t- I think I think it'll be okay for some movies, like, um, like a, you know, like I don't Avenger. You know, maybe we do Avengers and Avengers: Age of Ultron as one episode. You know, we, I don't think we always have to just do one movie per episode. No, you know, of course not. Yeah, so I, you know, we'll mix it up. We'll try some different things, but I think generally the idea is for audience members listening is a way for them to kind of understand new movies that are coming out, so like have an understanding of like what built up to them. And for us, it's a great excuse to kind of like get prepped for those movies and to talk about old movies and how they really influence what's coming out this year. And if people are uh, have some ideas of upcoming projects that they would like us to discuss let us know and maybe we will do that and you can reach out to us through our social media which phil's going to tell you about right now yeah um uh, p weed and half on oh, yeah, twitter well, and instagram yeah. am i i don't know what i am yeah i'm p weed and half on instagram i don't know what i am on twitter and i wonder if you search phil weed and half on there you'll find me and tom bindi tom bindi is it Instagram, I believe, right? Correct. All right, Bindi Tom Bindi. You can find him there. And you can find us, you know, online and uh, friend us, share the podcast, uh, review the podcast, like us, do everything you can because it really, you know, it helps us out. I, I don't know. Should music, should we keep the same music? Are we going to be that lazy or should we get a new tune? No, we should get a new tune. We'll get a new tune. We'll get a new tune in here. We'll have new music. We'll have new everything. We just we're gonna get this ball rolling. I'm excited to do this. I think this will be a fun project for us. Yeah, this was a fun first episode. Yeah, yeah, and like I think, especially we we really like Unbreakable. I think Split will be interesting because Un- Unbreakable legitimately may well we are gonna review Get Out, but I mean when we finish the calendar year 2019, Unbreakable has a very good chance of finishing up in like the top five movies we reviewed this year for me. I yeah. think it's that good. Yeah. One thing, oh, I guess before we go, I, I, I had this thought during the Golden Globes talk, and I also, it sort of relates to that John Krasinski, Paul Thomas Anderson article that kind of that went viral, I guess, this week and kind of yeah. popped up that quote that John Krasinski basically said that the filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, who was very important to Tom and I, um, basically said that he was talking, complaining about a movie sucking and hating it and Paul Thomas Anderson pulled him aside. It's like, please don't say you hated the movie. Like, it's really hard to make movies. We need to support each other. And if someone's taking the big swing and taking those chances, like, we need to support that, even if it's not for you. Just say it's not for you. And I and I think that's good advice. And I think, you know, I would get really mad at some of the movies coming out and some of the newer movies that came out. Like, I remember Solo, I was especially upset about. And, you know, I'm going to try, I think, this year to not get as mad at the movies for not being what I wanted them to be or expected them to be because I was also like really thinking about this with the golden globes and I have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody yet. And I have not seen green book yet. And I don't like the way that now I'm going to be watching those movies kind of with my arms crossed. And I, and I, and that's kind of shitty. And I was thinking about that, like how unfair that is to those movies, to those performances that those actors gave to all those crew members that put work in there. Like no one sat down to make those movies to like upset people you know, like, you know, fuck Brian Singer, but he didn't finish that movie. I'm sure Rami Malek still gives a great performance. Like, I want to watch those movies and enjoy those movies. And I want to, like, just generally enjoy movies. And I don't want to, I'm not saying I won't be critical ever, but I do want to, like, make a point of, like, movies are really hard to make. And even if it's not for you, 
there's still great value in talking about them. Like, even if I don't love Split as much as Unbreakable, that doesn't mean I'm going to go around talking about, like, Split fucking sucks. You know, I don't want I don't really want to do that anymore. I don't think it's a good way to spend my energy. So, like, that's kind of my, my New Year's resolution with the podcast. I'm glad to hear that. Welcome to my world. Oh, fuck off. Oh, come on. You know I'm a movie whore. Unless you're, unless you're Dinesh D'Souza making a fake documentary. Yeah, it's, there's no need to just purely hate on shit. I mean, sometimes it's fun to do in private company. But, yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think that's a nice way to look at things. Yeah. I mean, I, like, and still wrestle. I mean, like, because there's still movies like, you know, we don't need to go into it. You and like, I are still going to wrestle? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, if something like Romo comes up, I'm not going to, like not say I struggle, I didn't struggle with the movie, like, you know, and, or something like that. I'm obviously going to like talk about my struggles with, you know, story or characters or whatever it is that like I have, you know, but I'm, you know, I just don't want to like be personally offended by anything, you know, that's, that, that's, yeah, personally, that's childish, personally offended by the quality of a movie or something like that. Although yeah, I that's do, a childish way to live your life. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I do think though, like there are, you know, disappointments and we'll talk about them, but you know, like it'll be interesting. Like, what it split? There's a very good chance that I'll think Glass is a fucking huge surprise and a great, great, like wonderful popcorn movie. Or there's a good chance that I'm just like, eh, M Night just like really, this was better as a, a movie in theory than it is as an actual movie. And you know, but I'm excited to find out. Like, who cares? It's a filmmaker doing original work. So like, let's fucking support that at the very least. Yeah, movies are great. We love movies. They're supposed to be fun. And ultimately, they're just movies. So everybody calm down. That's right. I watched Mandy today. That was a good movie. I liked it. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that off mic because I think we're already two hours. We're at 154. Yeah. So, all right. Let's wrap it up. Let's call let's it, wrap it up. Let's call it a day. All right. I will watch see Mandy, you. everybody. Go, yeah, go watch Mandy. It's, it's really uh, it's really colorful. And, um, yeah, I'll see you next week. We'll, t- we'll talk split. Okay. Bye, lovers. Goodbye. Love each other. I love you. I love you so much. It was the kids, David. It's the kids. <laughs> they call me Mr. Glass. They said I was so fat. All right, bye. <laughs>